Welcome to the Think Christian Podcast, maybe the only place that's trying to tie a theological thread from Taylor Swift's Midnights to Star Wars Andor. Josh Larson here, your host. I'm not the problem, but not the solution either. So I don't know, maybe that makes me the antihero. We are talking about antiheroes on this episode of the TC Podcast. Taylor Swift gifted us with the idea when she named the first single off her new album, Midnight's Antihero. It also happens that an antihero is the title character of the latest Star Wars series that's streaming on Disney+, Plus, Andor. That would be Cassian Andor, played by Diego Luna, who we last saw in the Star Wars feature film Rogue One. Catherine Freeman and J.R. Forsteros are going to join me to consider what we can learn about the human condition from antiheroes, including those that we find in the Bible. A quick note before we jump in, TC's partner program, Groundwork, has a new free ebook just in time for Advent. It's called Christmas Hope and the Women in Jesus' Family Tree. This focuses on the women mentioned in Matthew's genealogy of Jesus. The idea is to explore the hope and the promise of Christmas for the broken, the traumatized, the outsider, and the imperfect. So if you would like to read that this Advent, you can get your free copy by going to groundworkonline.com slash christmashope. That's groundworkonline.com slash christmashope. I don't think you can describe any of the women in that genealogy as antiheroes, but some other biblical figures are going to come up as we get into this show. First up, another foray to a galaxy far, far away with Andor. Josh Larson here, back with J.R. Forresteros. J.R., I knew you'd be a good fit for this topic, not only because you were probably already watching Andor, but you're the author of the book, Empathy for the Devil, finding ourselves in the villains of the Bible. Now, villains and antiheroes, two very different things. Maybe you can give me your distinction between the two. Perhaps, you know, as you were thinking about those sorts of terms when you were putting your book together. Yeah, you know, I look at a villain as someone who is just objectively doing something bad. So I would look at like a, in recent pop culture, like a Walter White, right? Like, mm. dude is cooking meth. And he he tells himself it's to provide for his family, but from the get-go, viewers know that that's not the case, right? That this is purely a pride thing for him, uh, and and so it's like he's he's a villain. So even though he might claim conflict, there's no conflict on the viewers' part, is maybe. Yeah, and I, and I think the show was very intentional about framing it that way. You know, uh, okay. Vince Gilligan said in multiple interviews that he was shocked that people still rooted for Walter and in the mm. writer's room, it almost became kind of a game of like, what, what's the work, what's the thing we can do that will make people turn against Walter really? White? And the answer was nothing. Like, huh. you know, it didn't matter what he did. Um, on the other hand, I would take someone like Magneto, who even when he was leading an organization called the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, which would seem to put you squarely in villain territory, had these very clear motivations that were not exactly wrong. I mean, you know, the classic Magneto origin story is that he was a survivor of the Holocaust who had seen what happened when humanity decided someone was other and he wasn't going to let it happen to him and his family again. And so when they started doing it to mutants, he said, okay, if if you're so committed to might makes right, we're going to be the mightiest. And like, 
it's interesting, right? Because with the with the villain, it's more like we can disagree, like we can maybe even agree with their methods, but disagree with their end goal. Like I think there is a narrative. There's there was a TV show called Good Girls, where some suburban moms start doing illegal things, a la Breaking Bad. But it's because they don't have any other way to provide for their families, legitimately. And it was much more of a critique of the limitations that women still face in our modern culture. And it was interesting because they were doing a lot of the same stuff as Walter White mm-hmm. um, in, in big ways, but they felt more like antiheroes because you really did feel like this was the best option that they had. And I think with an antihero like Magneto, it's it's different, right? Because it's like we could we could condemn the methods as squarely villainous in a lot of cases and yet agree with his somewhat cynical take, but a take that often plays out as real, like that that he was right. Like oftentimes in the comics and in real life, we see violence break out against the other simply because they're other, you know? Yeah, that example makes me think of um, Eric Killmonger in Black Panther, you know, played Absolutely. by Michael B. Jordan. So, so there are villains that uh, also serve that anti-hero role, I guess. All right, well, those those distinctions are helpful as we move in and consider how they might apply to, to Andor, which is now streaming... On Disney Plus, the title refers to Cassian Andor, played by Diego Luna. Now, in the 2016 film Rogue One, at that point, Cassian is a rebel intelligence officer. So he's already officially working against the evil empire. Andor takes place years before those events. So here, Cassian is still something of a scoundrel. He's trying to stay under the radar of the empire. When we meet him, he's in debt to friends. Uh, he's scrounging together money by stealing parts to sell in the black market. He's basically mostly a guy living for himself. People blame you for what happened. Blame me? You killed two corpos and came home to hide. But the entire town at risk and others imperials on the street. If Damon kept his mouth shut. If this, if that. If you, if me, if Tim. We were doing a deal, you You scam, you borrow, you lie, you disappear. As the series proceeds, and as of this recording, there are still a couple of episodes left to air, Cassian gets increasingly caught between the Empire and the rising rebellion. And so, to my mind, he's moving ever so slowly from a pretty clear anti-hero to something maybe more heroic, if still conflicted. Now, J.R. Andor has been praised by critics for its maturity and complexity, I think especially compared to some of the other Star Wars series we've had. How about you? Are you as high on it as the general critical consensus has been? I would say in terms of storytelling, absolutely. You know, I I love that we are, are, we are witnessing the birth of the rebellion. I love that we are getting bureaucracy as evil, you know, I think some of the some of the characters who are committed to dotting the I's and crossing the T's are the <laughs> ones who are actually successfully rooting out the, the origins of the rebellion, you know, that otherwise would go unnoticed. Mm-hmm. So I think that's really interesting. And I do enjoy how Cassie and Andor seems to be getting dragged into the rebellion, kicking and screaming. You know, everything he does to try to get away from it ends up wrapping him up further inside of it. Which, in a way, I think is an interesting commentary on the way empires fall, which mm. we may want to get into later. But, you know, that's there seems to be a theme that has been developed over the middle episodes that is the empire likes to 
assert control and dominance by slowly strangling us mm-hmm. to the point that we don't. It's kind of the old adage of boil a frog in, in a pan, right? If you do it right. slowly. And the rebellion's way to resist that is to bring the violence front and center. So to do things that provoke this larger explosive violence that then makes the everyday citizens have to react in some way, you know, have to respond rather than just sort of like slowly acquiescing to the gradual loss of rights and life. So I think all that's really interesting. I do think that at least in the first six episodes, it could have been the first four episodes. It's Mm -hmm. a little slow Mm -hmm. um, and could have had a pretty heavy hand in the editing. But I mean, you know, it's Star Wars on TV, so it's hard to it's hard for me to complain about that and not get beat up by my twelve year old self. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. The these episodes are taking their time, and there are even maybe we'll get to this if we have um, times certain plot threads and even characters that to this point feel completely extraneous. I mean, they fit narratively, but really, the show would not lose anything without them. But at the same time, what I'm loving about it is that attention to detail, which you need the time for. It, it, this series so far has almost been like reading the minutes of a session of the Galactic Senate. And I mean that, I mean that as a compliment, That's a compliment. It is absolutely a compliment. It's very detail-oriented. It's examining, as you said, the actual machinations of oppression, the tactics, the strategies, the meetings, the inter-office dynamics among, you know, the, the people who are working for the empire. That all sounds really dull, but it is so smartly told, I found, that it's all been fascinating to me. I'm sitting watching these long meeting scenes thinking, why am I not bored? First of all, I'm thinking, how in the world did this ever get greenlit? That they were going to give this amount of time with no blasters, no lightsabers, just to these meetings. And then the second question is, but I'm fascinated by this. And I think you can look to the showrunner, the creator here, and see maybe why. It's Tony Gilroy, who also made the great law drama Michael Clayton with George Clooney, a feature film that was very wonky, but it was very, it was riveting as well following that case. And it was also attentive to the human cost of bureaucratic oppression. So I think there's a through line there and explains to me why I'm I'm eager for another meeting. Even though that goes against all of my instincts, I'm eager eager to see what happens at the next meeting of those galactic command or empire commanders, um, which you wouldn't think would be the case. Now, Michael Clayton is also the story of an anti-hero. And so it's very similar to what we get here with Cassian Andor. What do you think, JR, um, of this character, maybe compared to the one we see in Rogue One? Um, and then I threw kind of a, um, a little experiment at you. Does Cassian remind you in any way of any of the anti-heroes of the Bible. So maybe start with what you just think of him in general and his Rogue One um, appearance, uh, and then we can get to those kind of biblical figures. I'll do a teaser, Josh. Uh, my biblical answer is going to get me run out of uh, the internet. So, oh, um, wow. Run out inflame, of the internet. <laughs> inflame Christian Twitter, uh, <laughs> those of us who are still there. You know, the moral universe of Star Wars has always been interesting. And I think people forget that that George Lucas designed the original three movies to be kids' movies, you know? So very clear black and white, good and evil, mm. you know, rebellion and empire. And the one notable exception to that was Han Solo, who was the scoundrel until 
Josh, I'm sure you remember where you were when Greedo shot first, right? And <laughs> yes. how like how <laughs> devastating that was for so many people because that was Han's arc, right? Was mm. he was an anti-hero. He was mm-hmm. he was the guy who left and it like was a surprise when he showed up at the end of episode 4 and saved yeah. Luke and helped us end the day, right? And by by having Greedo shoot first, they took that like anti-heroness or villainy away from him because now it's just self-defense and that fit, I think, a lot more cleanly into Lucas's very simple binary of the mm-hmm. day. But as we've all grown up, and as I think we've all hungered for that more, the moral gray that Han shot first implied might be out there in the right. Star Wars universe, right? And so now we're getting to realize all of that, right? With, mm. with the Mandalorian and with Boba Fett and now with Cassian in Rogue One, like at the beginning of the movie, he kills a guy because it was in the interest of the rebellion, so it was still, this is what's good for the rebellion, but it was also like a, okay, yep. like he straight up murdered a guy, you know? Yeah. Okay. You know, Luke would have never done that. Uh, Han probably would not have done that after George Lucas, you know, whatever. And so it is interesting to take that back because several of the characters in this show are needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few kinds of logic, right? Luthen has been that way. I mean, it'll be interesting to see where Mon Mothma goes from this point. But some of some of the big leaders are the people who are, yeah, like acting like generals in an army and sacrificing pawns and that kind of stuff. The leaders of the rebellion, these are. Yeah, yeah, the leaders of the, yeah, the good guys, yeah. right, are the right. ones doing this stuff. Yeah. And then, yeah, then you have Cassian who comes in the middle of this and he seems like a hustler, right? He's a wheeler and a dealer. He's always got seven things going on. And (laughs) he only gets dragged into this because of self-preservation. You know, these two, they're not even actual Imperial Guards, right? They're contractors who are at the far edge of the empire. Mess with him. And then he sort of accidentally kills one of them. And, and then and, you know, so then he has to kill the other one. And that's what sets this whole chain of events off. Uh, yeah. is that and there's a distinction is, even in that opening scene too, though. Like the second one is much more of a cold-blooded decision. Right. Um, there, there's less gray area in his decision right. to kill the second man. Yeah. And then everything else he does is out of this kind of, I mean, you get little flashes of it, right? I think when he kills... The assistant cook from the from the bear. I don't remember what his name is in the show, but <laughs> bear. The bear is another great show. Uh, if you haven't seen it, um, uh, during at the end of the heist, right? He recognizes this guy is going to take all the money from the rebellion, yeah. and so he has this like moment of more altruism than we've seen from him. But it doesn't last. That's a fascinating moment because it's at once a stage, I think a significant stage in his decision of where he's going to land because he's offered the chance to get in on this right. heist after Split, the heist. It was like 40 Basically million. the two of them. Yeah. yeah. It's a chance for him to really live into what he's been saying he's there for all along, which is the money. And so he makes a choice there that, no, I am not going to at least take it that far. I'm going to draw a line in the stand, sand in what I'm willing to do. But then we see that as maybe a noble gesture. At the same time, he makes the decision to go ahead and shoot the guy who proposed this. So it's a very muddy sequence that is representative of a lot of the things that we're watching him as a character and us as viewers deal with in this series. So let me get to your 
Let me get to your biblical figure. Uh, you know, the internet's had a good run. I, I don't. I guess you're going to end it. End it with this. Um, it's been nice, everyone. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, I think it's. I think it's King David. Okay. I am in the small company of people that actually don't think David was a great dude. And while he may have been an effective monarch, I don't think he was a hero by any stretch of the imagination. Honestly, at any point in his life. Uh, arguably the most heroic thing he ever did was protect the sheep when he was a kid. But, you know, after he's anointed uh, by Samuel, right, he actually goes into this life of being a mercenary where he is robbing people, where uh, he is actually fighting with the Philistines against his own people, the Israelites, a lot of times. And then, you know, then he ultimately ends up taking the throne from Saul. And, of course, the Bible provides a number of justifications for, for why this happens and that this is good and that this is, is God's plan. But a lot of that, I mean, one of the things we have to remember is that even the books of Samuel were written after David's death. You know, so we're, we're even that perspective is someone looking back on Saul's kingship and then David's uh, assumption of that and doing so. Then, of course, in David's kingship, you have, you know, the whole thing with, uh, you know, the rape of Bathsheba and the murder of his buddy, Uriah, like a dude that was with him from way back before he was king. And then you have everything that happens with his children where, you know, one of them, one of his sons rapes one of his daughters and then constantly trying to kill each other. One of his sons usurps the throne from him and drives him away. I mean, there's, it's just this huge mess of a life. Uh, that just to me indicates someone who was not a very good guy. And I look at all of that and I see, you can kind of see this. You can kind of see this man who way too often lives into his worst self, which is, which is I think what we're seeing in Cassian in the first season here, this mm. person who is always on the lookout for himself and is happy to help so long as there's something in it for him but oftentimes will uh, just present whatever face people need to see for him to get his way. I think you make a strong case. I mean, this is this all makes sense to me when you think about so many of the stories of King David. And also, you know, when you think of some of the Psalms, aren't they almost confessions of an antihero? I mean, they can be read that way. And so we get it from his own mouth, wrestling with yeah. his sin in some instances. And... So yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense to me. The The person who came to mind is I was thinking about Cassian specifically, and it took me a while to get here, but it was Gideon. And oh, John J. Okay. Thompson, who does our playlist for the show, for our episodes, he actually, we were emailing back and forth about this idea, and he mentioned Gideon along with a bunch of others. And at first I was like, that doesn't sound right, you know, to me, just at a first impression. But then you know, was giving this some more thought, rereading some of these stories, and I realized, okay, John's on to something here. You have Gideon yeah. living under oppression, right, as Cassian Andor is, resisting the call to join the cause, even when the call comes from the angel of the Lord. You know, he's still not on board. And then how about his complaining about the oppression we see? That really reminded me of another conversation in Andor where uh, Cassian has been hired by the rebels to infiltrate an imperial garrison. So it's earlier than the conversation we were just talking about. And he only talks about being against something, not for something. The pace of oppression outstrips our ability to understand it. And that is the real trick of the imperial thought machine. It's easier to hide behind 40 atrocities than a single incident. But they have a fight on their hands, don't they? 
Our elemental rights are such a simple thing to hold, they will have to shake the galaxy awfully hard to loosen our grip. Uh, I'd like to hear what Clem believes. I know what I'm against. Everything else will have to wait. Now, of course, you know, Gideon comes around in the biblical story. That's, I think, why for immediately it made, gave me pause when John mentioned it. And we do know from Rogue One that Cassian mostly comes around, at least compared to where he is here. So that made sense to me. I think what we're getting, we'll see where the series ends up, but something that could maybe be called the slow sanctification of Cassian Andor. Yeah. And this is hinted for me in the opening title that is very brief, but very distinctive. We see this looking in outer space as we often are in Star Wars, and we see this crescent revealing itself as a planet as the light changes. And then that transforms into this symbol of, it's a symbol of the rebellion, right? I'm, I'm not sure if I am uh, got that perfectly right. I'm, my nerdiness only goes so far when it comes to Star <laughs> Wars, but that's my impression. And I see that too as being this like dawning of a consciousness yeah. that yeah. we're seeing in the, in the case of Cassian. Yeah, it's like this slow work, which I think I think the word sanctification there is is really perfect for that, right? The writer of Colossians says to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And mm. I think we see that a lot in Cassie. And he is increasingly unable to escape or to hide from the consequences of empire. Yeah. Right. Like, like he's he's he spent his whole life kind of just able to uh, since he was a kid, right? And since his planet was destroyed by the Empire. He spent his whole life kind of hiding and and just like kind of tunnel vision. Uh, I'm just going to worry about me and mine. Yeah. And I think he's getting to a place where everywhere he tries to turn and focus, there's still more oppression and still more oppression and still more oppression. And it's, it's forcing a confrontation in him. You know, mm -hmm. um, I was not able to save my sister. Does that mean I have no ability to save anyone else? Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I think... I belong to a denomination that likes to imagine that sanctification is a is a quick sort of a thing, and I just don't think it is. You know, I think it is mm. this slow, steady process of working out our salvation. You know, and refusing to hide from the consequences of sin in the world. You know, whether they're individual or systemic, and yeah. what happens in our spirits when we choose to bear witness and choose to ask, how might like Gideon, how might God be calling me to? do something that is terrifying and seems impossible and it's at all the things that Gideon was afraid of, right? He's just such a sad sack, pathetic, last person you'd want not to be Not on the hero. front lines. Not on the not front even, lines yeah, of this. Right? Yeah, Not Not sure. the person that, yeah, you line people, I mean, much like the David story, right? He lines up all the brothers and it's not like the oldest real handsome guy and it's not even the yeah. second. It's it's the kid that is so unimportant, he's not even there, right? I mean, it's, it's that kind of a thing. And yet again and again and again, in scripture, that's who God chooses to work through, right? Is the the outcast, the abandoned, the powerless. And so uh, what happens when we stop treating that as a bug and start treating that as a feature? Mm. You know, what might God be able to do in in, the, in us and in our world? I, I, think it's, I think it's a really potent question. So a lot to dig into with Andor. Uh, I'm really glad that I made the time to watch it. We, we've talked about so much, we probably don't have time. We probably should cut out what we think they should have cut out and not get into those <laughs> things. I'll just say, I'll just say I'm still waiting for Cyril Karn, the, that wannabe Empire lackey played by Kyle Soler. That better have some payoff because those scenes have not been riveting to me compared to the Oh, others. interesting. So, See, he's, he was the first character that really grabbed me in this show. Well, he was at first and then 
it seems like he's sort of been put on a shelf, but we still have to spend a lot okay. of unimportant okay. time with him. I, I agree at the beginning. Yeah, I agree at the beginning. I would be surprised if they don't bring him back around. They're going to have to at this the, point. Yeah. So we'll see. We'll see how that goes. Yeah. But thank you, Jared, for talking about at least the first half of the season or so with me. Again, I'd encourage folks to check out JR's book, Empathy for the Devil. What else have you been up to lately? What's happening on, on uh, the fascinating podcast these days? We just did a big spooky Halloween episode because we finished that up, you know. Excellent. And we've been talking about the, the impending water crisis and all that kind of stuff. I almost landed a Halloween Ends article at think Christian, but it spiraled right. out of control, uh, <laughs> <laughs> as as sometimes my stuff tends to do. Your so, words, not mine, by the way. Yeah, no, a hundred percent my words. Yeah, I got I got a little ways into that thing, and I was like, oh no, Josh, this is going off the rails. I'm sorry, but it it, it ended up over at Tor.com. I was staggered when I got to the end of the the last Halloween movie, and I'm doing air quotes because we all know it'll get another reboot or something. But they turned Michael Myers into a Christ figure. And if there was a cardinal rule of slashers, I would have been, I would have thought the stabby guy doesn't get to be Jesus. Uh, so of course I had to write about that and I had a lot of fun with it, even though it ended up being 3000 words. So yeah, it sounded, it sounded like a fascinating idea. So I'm glad that came to fruition. That's <laughs> yeah. at tor.com. That's at tor, right? uh, where, you know, even though they're a secular publishing website, they love it when I get all Jesus-y. So yeah, uh, yeah. I think Joe, George uh, writes for them from time to time too, he, doesn't he? Does he does also, so, yeah. Yeah, it's good Good to see you, you guys. Got our secret uh, little tour TC club. Don't don't tell there everyone. There you go. But yeah. <laughs> and I then Quan, I have a Quantum Leap article coming up for that the is Christian right. as soon as that, that show ends. So Your Quantum Leap dreams will come true on, on right. TC oh. pretty soon. So just love looking forward so to that. <laughs> All right. Thanks again, Jer. We'll uh, we'll talk to you again soon, okay? Thank you, Josh. Always a pleasure. I was down for a count without any real way out in this new submarine like the well of Jonah's dreams and what if I should rise up from several fathoms deep A scar on my soul and a humbling tale of a world that swallowed me That was a little bit of Guster's Jonah, one of my favorite biblical antiheroes and a great musical reflection, if you ask me. Hello, your deeply flawed musical protagonist, John J. Thompson here with another carefully curated playlist full of pop, soul, country, rock, hip-hop, and alternative songs that grapple with the idea of the antihero from a variety of perspectives. I don't know, maybe it's because modern rock and soul music has such an outsider and subversive root, or maybe it's an after-effect of these postmodern days but antiheroes, or sometimes outright villains, have become common fodder for songwriters for a long time. I'll be honest, when I was a kid, I never thought we'd see the Joker turned from a villain into a kind of an antihero. Could the devil himself be far behind? Nah, the Stones covered that ground a long time ago. I suppose that line, you know, the one between the villain and the antihero, really comes down to perspective. Who is the protagonist of the story? Who is the central character we are watching? I've long thought that the entire book of Judges can really be 
seen as a sort of litany of biblical antiheroes, with maybe the nation of Israel herself playing the ultimate role right at the middle of the whole story. So, in this mix, you'll find not only some other great songs like Guster's about Jonah, but tunes about Gideon, Jephthah, Samson, and even Ehud. And there are several non-biblical examples of antiheroes too, including a great track from Leon Bridges that you'll hear a bit later in the show. You can find the mix by searching Spotify for the Think Christian profile and following it. You can also find the link in the email you get from us. And don't forget the massive archive list as well. Until next time, this is JJT encouraging you to turn up the tunes and learn from the antiheroes, but try not to become one. Peace. Catherine Freeman is here with us. She's our specialist when it comes to the biggest women pop stars out there. After talking Beyonce's Renaissance this summer, she's now here to discuss Midnights from Taylor Swift. Catherine, not a bad year when you get uh, new albums from those two, wouldn't you say? Yeah, this has been a great year for me as someone who admires both women. That Yeah, and we're going to probably get more Beyonce and Taylor still has more albums to re-record. I'm very happy. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, they're both kind of um, still managed to stay on the radar after releasing that music, aren't they? With yeah. um, either things we have yet to know what they are or Taylor's tour coming up next year. So we'll probably be talking about them for quite a while. But right now we do have Midnight's, uh, both the standard album and then the 3 a.m. edition, the extra sh- songs that she put out later. I don't know if we'll get to all of those, but I did want to find out from you, Catherine, before we talk about some of the themes, some of the ideas that play in Midnight's, what did you make of the album sound? Because it's not really a continuation of that no. quiet interiority, the the sort of the forested feel that we got on Folklore and Evermore, is it? No. I am probably in the minority is that I actually prefer <laughs> this, like sonically, the music. Jack Antonoff, I think because they're such good friends, I just think that it's like, is personally my favorite Taylor collaborator. Let me just say, I love Folklore and I Evermore has okay. great songs, but just like sonically, to me, this feels like a little bit more like innovative than mm. I feel like um, with like Evermore and Folklore, she's leaning kind of more into like the Joni Mitchell kind of thing, which maybe is where her career ends up as she, you know, ages and goes into like a, ne- a next decade, but I just feel like for me, I maybe this is a minority opinion, but I really like Jack Antoff and I love how his albums sound. And so, yeah, I'm happy with it sonically for the most part. Okay. <laughs> yeah. He's he's producing the whole album this time. And I, I got to say, I do love the touches that, you know, you see from his other work. I think a lot of the synthesizers, which work so well with her voice, that is um, one of the highlights for me, those instances on the album. I didn't mind that she moved away from that folkloric period. I, th- I think I that's probably still my favorite stuff of hers. But I will say I probably appreciate the songs here that maintain some of that without going too far back towards something like Reputation. You know, this is very yeah. much, very much has a, a, a sense of everything she's done before yeah. coming together. And it's a bit of a move back sonically to something maybe even more like Lover would be more accurate. So yeah, I had fun with it, though I'm probably not so much like you where the Folklore and Evermore is still going to be where it really came together for me. But still, there's a lot of fun stuff here. Yeah, I think to me, I feel like Taylor is a pop star. She's a singer-songwriter, but she is a pop star. And I feel like for someone, and, and in that way, she's kind of in rarefied air, right? I think oftentimes women are one or the other. And I feel like Taylor, at least for this mm 
starter generation is probably the only person that straddles both lines so well, almost perfectly, which is just part of her brilliance. And so for me, like sonically, as someone who goes to see her in concert, Folklore and Evermore aren't pop star albums. Like they're great, great True. albums. I love, I love. But you know, for someone who's going to play Cowboy Stadium or like Soldier Field, <laughs> like yeah. multiple nights in a row, you kind of have to have both. And so I appreciate the sort of, yeah, you can tell that she like recorded this as she's recording her old music because, we, you know, you didn't mention it, but she released also like Target got like an exclusive edition where there were three additional songs on that one. And the one song, it's called Hits Different. It sounds so much like it could have been on like Red. And so mm-hmm. you can see just like her history. And so I think it's like very fitting that the tour is going to be called Eras because I think Midnight's does a really good job of bringing all those eras together. Yeah, and speaking of songs, music that'll play in a stadium, you've got Antihero, the first single. And that one, I mean, despite everything I said about loving the folklore stuff, it's such a great song. I love the synths there. The chorus is, you know, instantly going to be something not only heard in stadiums, but to use to represent her career, I think, when it is all said and done. And obviously, Antihero brings up this idea of a split identity, which I think she explores throughout the album that she's not all good, she's not all bad, but something more complicated in between. I'm curious to hear, Catherine, what you think is meant here on this album by the term antihero, you know, not only in the song, but in the others that do reveal this conflicted feeling about whether she's singing about herself or whether she's more in character or kind of adopting the Taylor Swift persona. What do you think is meant here by this idea of anti-hero on the album? Yeah, I will say Taylor is like super hyper aware. Like she knows everything and everyone's perceptions of her. And I think she maybe part of it is just that thing that all of us go through when we go into our 30s where we can kind of like reflect back and we just are like, oh, I can see how I made a, a bad choice here. Or like I've heard her talk in previous interviews about how people sort of her early persona of kind of like wide eyed innocence of how it was like all an act and that that she's very manipulative or calculating. And she was like, that was, it's because I'm a woman. Whereas like, she's like, I'm shrewd. Essentially, she was like, I'm shrewd. And like, I know what I'm doing. Basically, I'm in control of all of these things. And like that she's making a conscious choice. And I think that is what I see in here in Antihero is like her kind of owning that like, I know I'm not perfect. I know that I have these faults, but people make me to seem worse than I am. Mm. And or that I'm like in like maybe like make me seem like I'm a bad person and like particularly with the Kanye thing like you've taken this too far and you are trying to make him the bad guy or you know with the Scooter Braun and the music thing like that you like that you keep these things going but that people are still rooting for you because they enjoy your music and so yeah I think antiheroes are really grappling one I think interior but also two like all of these sort of messages she's hearing of like yeah maybe tongue-in-cheek, I'm the problem, and that it's got to be exhausting for my fans to always be rooting for the anti-hero. Like, that maybe in a lot of ways circles 
her success is frustrating to people. <laughs> I think a lot of people don't understand. I think part of it is because she's a woman. I think because she's like a youngish white woman. Like, And I think folklore to people who really like that is because it's like, that's very clear. Like we understand what you're doing. This This music sonically makes sense. You're not trying to be a pop star. You are a singer songwriter. I feel like it, the narrative is easier to grasp. And I think, yeah. So I think that's what anti-hero is. I think that's what mastermind is. I think it's both Taylor the persona and Taylor herself grappling with those identities. And yeah, the sort of thoughts that keep you awake about yourself <laughs> in the middle of the night of like, did I do the wrong thing here? Am I the bad guy? Maybe I'm the problem. <laughs> <laughs> You mentioned Mastermind, and I think Karma is another anti-heroic song on here. You describe well the tension at work in a lot of those, where a couple of things are going on at once. She is confessing to some degree, but also defending herself, <laughs> in the other hand, from accusations she, feel is, she feels is too strong or have gone too far. So, yeah, I like how you describe it in terms of narrative, and this is a much more complicated narrative. Yeah you are getting on Midnight's. And maybe that speaks more to her career, her gift, her actual persona than something like Folklore or Evermore does. So tell me, gave you this strange assignment, if that's kind of the picture of an anti-hero you see in the album, is there anyone, any figure in the Bible who strikes, not to say it's a Taylor Swift figure, but strikes a similar posture, um, maybe captures this tension you've been describing um, as the one that she does on some of these songs? Did anybody come to mind? Yeah. So um, when you asked me that question, the person that immediately came to mind is David in the sense that I just think for as much good as David, there are so many like things where he made the wrong choice and yet still God called him a man after my own heart. And I just, this sort of awareness that, yeah, that you're imperfect and a sinner and it may be quote unquote an anti-hero, but that doesn't mean that you don't have other like things to offer. I don't know. Yeah. I feel like David could be a, an anti-hero in a way. And you, and a songwriter. The psalmist. Yeah, so and he it, was it a works, songwriter. Right? It does work. <laughs> I like it. And a musician. Yes. Yeah. Perfectly. That's great. Can I throw one at you that came yeah. to mind as I was thinking about this? Um, David makes sense to me. I also thought maybe about Rebecca. And that's because oh, yeah. there's some masterminding at work yeah. with her deception of Isaac, you know, so he would bless Jacob rather than Esau. And I like the idea too, though, that we see in the larger Old Testament narrative, this is ultimately to fulfill God's purpose. So there's this other sense of another active hand at work, yet she's a very conflicted figure. She's in this in-between state in that story in particular, I think, of villain and hero. And yeah. so I, I wondered if that might be not a one-on-one -on -one yeah. match, but one that kind of works. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And I think to me, what I love about that is there's just like, we're all complicated humans. And I think we're all sort of between the villain and the hero. And, you know, we play both. But I think for me, like the larger thing I thought theologically is the importance of like the self-awareness, right? Of seeing ourselves rightly as sinners first, then like mm. saved by grace. And I sort of really appreciated that about the album of like, just kind of like, I think really letting go of this like persona of like, you know, innocent, kind of wide-eyed and like being like kind of really fully to me, like sonically for the first time, like owning, I am a mastermind. I am an anti-hero. 
I do think a lot about karma. You know, I do think about revenge sort of. So to me, it feels like more grown up in a way of like, yeah, I don't have to play this role. I don't have to pretend to be this person anymore. And, you know, it served a purpose for a while. And so I think even for us of like, just like owning that we're sinners and imperfect. And and I think it helps us like one, receive the grace of God more like gratefully and thoughtfully. But I think, yeah, also just like, taking that pressure off to always be like the hero. Mm -hmm. And the way you're describing what that looks like or sounds like on Midnight's, I think is also distinct from some of what we get on Reputation maybe, where it is also a throwing away of that innocent persona, but from a different posture towards a different purpose, I think, than what we see here. Yeah, I think you're right. I think Reputation is more of like an angry, like a, Mm. I was scorned and burned and... I'm mad about this. And I feel like maybe Midnight's is a more of like kind of reflecting back on like, I don't need that anymore. Like a more like, yeah, a more you're owning it yourself and not in a kind of how you like work things through things. You're mad something. Maybe the Rebecca story is like a perfect fit of this of like, yeah, it was very deceitful at the time. And like her motives Mm. were wrong. And then, but for the larger story and God's narrative and the things that he was working, that was how things were supposed to be. And it sort of feels like that to me, I think, is a good maybe analogy for the difference, I think, between reputation and midnights. Well, thank you very much, Catherine. Uh, if people want more about this album, Midnight's, uh, Joylanda Jameson wrote about it at thinkchristian.net. She listened, speaking of David and the Psalms, she listened to the album alongside Psalm 139 and talked about how, you know, we're told there, even in darkest midnights, God is there. And touches on this idea that if there's gospel hope offered to antiheroes, and as you described, we all are, right? We're all struggling with our split selves in this way. Joylanda finds it there in Psalm 139. So that's at thinkchristian.net. And again, if you find it hard to keep up with all our articles, you can always subscribe to get our emails. So go ahead and do that at thinkchristian.net slash subscribe, and you will not miss out on a single one. Thank you again, Catherine. I think next time we talk probably won't be until we do our best pop culture of 2022 shows. So I'll be in touch with you about the details for that. But uh, until then, take care. Yeah, sounds good. Thanks for having me. I better slow down Cause I keep, keep tripping on words I don't want to say Just tell me right I can't commit, I can't make plans Sometimes the bed ain't worth the hand I think it's special, it makes me sad Sometimes the bet ain't worth the hand That's something that could be said of an antihero for sure Leon Bridges there with a track from his 2018 album Good Thing, Bet Ain't Worth the Hand Antiheroes are always going to appeal to us, I think, because we can see ourselves in them, the way we're pulled between our selfish instincts and a higher calling. In her Think Christian post on Taylor Swift's Midnights, Jolanda Jameson reminds us both of the importance of responding to that calling and the assurance we get in Scripture that God is there to catch us when we fall short of being perfect heroes. Jolanda wrote this, Unlike the world's standard of perfection, which Taylor Swift has been unfairly held to more than most, God's standard is tempered by grace and mercy given to us through Jesus Christ. We can rest peacefully knowing that God stands ready to reaffirm his love for us and silence all anxious thoughts of doubt, 
even in our midnights. Thank you to Joylanda for that post. Thanks also to Catherine Freeman and J.R. Forresteros for joining me on this episode. You could connect with both of them on Twitter. J.R. is at J.R. Forresteros and Catherine is at Catherine Annette. We are on Twitter too. Of course, you can find us at Think Christian. Find us that way on Facebook as well. And there are video versions of the TC podcast as well as some other video content up on the Think Christian YouTube channel. So just search for Think Christian on YouTube to get to that. If you are watching us on YouTube right now, well, then you missed out on a couple of tracks compiled by John J. Thompson for his Spotify playlist to accompany this episode, all under the theme of antiheroes. Search for the Think Christian playlist on Spotify if you want to hear those tracks. Now, you've heard me ask from time to time for listeners to review the show on Apple Podcasts. Well, thank you to Philip Marinello, who did just that recently. We appreciate it, Philip. Every review does help us out. So if others of you could just take 30 seconds or so, leave us a star rating, maybe a couple of lines, that would be great. It does help raise our profile on the platform and then find new listeners. The TC Podcast is a listener-supported production of Reframe Ministries, a family of programs designed to help you see your whole life reframed by God's gospel story. Visit reframeministries.org for more information. Our audio engineer and post-production supervisor is John Reeder, and Reframe's co-director overseeing content strategy is Robin Bassley. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back again in a couple of weeks to consider how another corner of our fandom connects with our faith.